And I pray that what you say to us from your word today will reshape the way that we live. We ask all of this in your powerful name, Lord Jesus. And everyone says... Can we just let the band know that we appreciate them leading us in worship this morning? If you are uh, unfamiliar to our church, our worship pastor, Jared, uh, he is leading a crew to partner with the church in Denver that we uh, support uh, and we financially, we also support them from time to time by sending people out there to walk alongside of them. They're a year and a half old. They're doing really well. We're grateful for them. Uh, thankful for Pam for reading that text over us. The first three weeks of our series in Romans 8, I read through what we had just done up to this point. Last week, I made Jared read the whole thing. And then this week, we decided to outsource that to Pam. I am grateful for her reading that text today. And I just want you to, to know, you should be grateful too. Because Pam pronounces words way better than I do. And they sound really well. As opposed to whatever southern drawl you get when I read from the text. So we're in Romans 8. Our text for today is 31 through 39. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you. We are being put to death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, all these things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are you afraid of? What in your life causes fear, anxiety, what immobilizes you, what causes you to struggle, what is taking place for you day to day, week to week that shuts you down and causes you not to be able to move forward as a person who follows after Jesus. The first question that Paul asks us in this text is what then are we to say about these things? What things? What things are we talking about? And it's everything that Pam just read. Pam only just read. What do we say about those things? What do we say about the fact that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus? What are we saying about the fact that the Spirit of God is actively at work in us? 
What are we saying when we consider that in that though we may suffer now, that God has given us a bit of a peek over the fence to see the goodness that he has offered for us forever, ever, forever, ever. What do we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do, first thing that we see in this text, we have some questions we're going to walk through. The first is, where is the condemnation? Verses 31 through 34, that's the question that we ask. Where is our condemnation? This is Paul recapping everything. I, I've shared with you before that for me, there are a couple of things that I struggle with a lot. One of those is overpacking. Anybody else overpack? Okay. So we know how this works. So when I pack at my house, I make sure that I have too much. Four-day trip, you need six pairs of shoes. On a, for a four-day trip, you need multiple pairs of pants. I, I need a shirt for leisure wear. I need a shirt in case we get fancy, uh, you know, because I do that all the time. I need these things in my suitcase. I need to make sure that I've got uh, hair gel there. I need deodorant. I need these things all, all in my suitcase. And then, at the end of the trip, it makes me lose my mind when I'm repacking. I undo the Hilton. I undo the Hampton. Let's be real. I undo the La Quinta. I go around the hotel room making sure that I have everything that I have shown up with. I do not bother to make a list of what all should be in there. I just know. If I have two green socks, I need to walk away with two green socks. If I have... Uh, three pairs of pants when I show up. I need to leave with three pairs of pants. I need to make sure that these things are there. I go as far as to pack my luggage. I then look underneath the bed. I, after that, I step outside with said luggage, leave it in the hallway with a door prop in case some creeper walks by and steals my stuff. I go back into the room. I look around the bed again. I keep going one more time. There have been times for me in this struggle filled, anxiety-ridden world where I have put my stuff in my car, walked back to the concierge, that's a fancy word for the person at the front desk, asked them for another key to my room, gone in and looked again. All to make sure that I don't miss anything. Paul asks us this question in Romans chapter 8 to make sure that we do not miss anything in regard to what he's saying. He is making sure that we, as those who are with him, and as he closes out these first eight chapters, because the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, this is where they shut down, and you see him go to a completely different train of thought when you get to Romans 9, which we will do eventually. He's saying to us, everything that you found in chapter 8, what are you going to say about that? Everything that you say is you found in chapters 5 through 8. Well, what do we say about that? Everything that you say in chapters 1 through 8. What are we saying about that? What do we say to these things? In a world where Christians are persecuted, mistreated, and when I say persecuted, I don't mean spoken ill of. Literal persecution. Physical persecution. What do you say to these things in a world that would say to you that your God is against you? 
If God is for us, who could be against us? Write this down. God, simple, simple enough, is for, and draw a blank. I don't see all of you writing, that's okay. You just you type it into your phone. God is for blank. Write your name in the blank. God is for blank. Write your name in the blank. For those of us who have trusted Jesus, that statement is true. And in all things that are happening to you, God is using those to say to you repeatedly, I'm for you. I'm going to count down from three and I want you to read that out loud. Like really out loud, not the way that our Baptist selves do things out loud. Three, two, one. Do it again. Three, two, one. But what, ab- but what about? Like that's the most popular question that we ask whenever anything is ever said that we don't agree with. Uh, whataboutism is a... You know what I mean when I say that, right? Whataboutism, it's whenever you present something to someone and their immediate retort is, what about? It's really popular with pol- politics. Whenever we make a statement about some, this leader or that leader, and we maybe just maybe uh, comment on uh, their policies or their character or their whatever, the, the reply of whomever disagrees with that person is, but what about blank? It became popular in the 80s when we were going through the Cold War. I'm a history major background. Uh, And it is something that is carried on even now. When we look at politicians and those who run against them, the immediate reply of anyone when they are presented with a fact is like literal fact, but what about when blank did blank? Let me give you the definition of it according to Wikipedia. We know that Wikipedia is a great source because everyone can contribute. Whataboutism is a variant that attempts to discredit a person's an opinion. <laughs> Whataboutism is a ver- is an idea that attempts to discredit an opponent's position by charging them with hypocrisy without directly refuting or disproving their argument. What about ism is the idea that attempt, is an idea that attempts to discredit an opponent's position by charging them with hypocrisy without directly refuting or disproving their argument. So when I say that God is for Steve or God is for whomever, God is for Ken, 
And God is for Nikki and God is for Billy. When we say that God is for people like that, not other people, but sometimes we say as an affront to God, but God, what about... God, what about my cancer? God, God what about my, my sick mom? What about my divorce? What about the fact that my wife went on a mission trip for four days and left me by myself? We begin to tell God He is not for us by what we're walking through. Therefore, forgetting that God is with us in the middle of it. Write down your whatabouts. Write, write them down. What are your whatabouts? And write them down. Can you go a step beyond reading it silently and just mumble those things to yourself? And after you read that, affirm it with God is for Danny. God is for Frank. God is for Deborah Jean. God is for Paul. God is for Larissa. God is for Maria. God is for us. God is for Jennifer. God is for Paul. God is for David. God is for Emily. God is for you. And there is nothing in this life that can separate you from that truth because that truth carries into eternity. God is for us. But what's next? Jesus actually, through Paul, affirms what's happening. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously give us all things? If we are not careful, this can send us down a bad road. It can send us north on 288. It can send us into this idea of prosperity that is unlike the God of the Bible. As if God needs to just give us things that we don't necessarily want because he, we're not seeing him shape our wants. The actual phrase there, if you... Look, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, nor am I a Greek scholar. You're probably thinking, surprise, surprise. I took both classes at the same time. On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I would read Greek, which goes left to right. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would read Hebrew, which goes right to left. I never knew where I was. But when you break down these words, when you take them apart, this phrase literally reads this. How he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, and the word is grace. How will he not grace us all things? How will God not give us undeserved merit and favor in all things. This is not a matter of God making sure that he stacks things up for me that I have them so that I can go forward. What this is saying to us as followers of Jesus is 
When we look at what God has given us in Jesus, his death and his resurrection, which means that there is therefore now no condemnation for me or for you if we are in Christ Jesus, and that's very central to this. God will therefore grace us everything. All of the things that you have as your stack of whatabouts, God has graced you those things, and those things do not get to defeat you. Because you stand in him who is unbeatable. Grace is a pretty interesting concept in, in the Bible. Uh, it is this notion, again, that God has given us out abundantly in spite of us. I don't know that Christians are always the most graceful people to talk about a lot. We even named our church that. But grace, when we really begin to look at it, is something that we are immersed in as followers of Jesus. And it is not something that we use in this false dichotomy. I was reading the other day, there's this idea in some perspectives of Christianity where you have truth and you have grace and they're these diametrically opposed ideas. That's not true because you can have truth without grace. You cannot have grace without truth. Because grace, when we look at it in Scripture, is always transformative. God, through His grace, uses everything to make us more like Jesus. When He disciplines you, it's for the sake of you being more like Jesus. When you're walking through something, those things, a God who knows all things, uses those things to make you more like Jesus. We can have truth and we can use it as a bat to hurt those who may be opposed to us. But grace is something that we look at and we see that truth is something you have submerged it in that. You can have truth without grace. You cannot have grace without truth. Are we grace-filled people? Is our hope for the transformation of our neighbors... And I hope that you hope that. If you don't hope that, I'm not sure that you're a Christian. I'll repeat myself. If there is not a hope in your heart that your lost friends will come to know who Jesus is, I am not sure that you're a Christian. I'm not sure that those who can make a truth-filled list of everything that God has offered us in Jesus. You can list out these things because you read enough Wikipedia, as I mentioned earlier. If there is absent the idea that you want lost people to come to saving faith in Jesus, you don't follow the Jesus we find in the Bible. Thirty-three. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, it's God who justifies. Who is going to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who has been raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Those three questions in 31, 32, 33... Are Paul saying to us, are, are you afraid? Well, you're forgetting that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Are you worried? You've stopped thinking about the fact that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you feeling guilty? Don't do that. You're missing this truth that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is to condemn, verse 34 said. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is not against you. Is there condemnation? Where is it? It's not there. Second question we see in this text. Is there a separation? Absolutely not. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's talking about Christians who are going to pay the ultimate price. As a matter of fact, Rome is at this point in history marching Christians to coliseums and amphitheaters to see them fight lions. And not only do they fight lions, there are gladiators there. The Christians at times would have their hands tied together while the gladiators would hold swords. That doesn't seem like a fair fight. All of these things are happening in a world where your king thinks he's God in order for you to say to this fledgling religion, hey, they lose. Christians lose. Well, no, verse 37 says to us. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. You're more than a conqueror. Not a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. What's that mean? Because that's a phrase we don't use a lot. You're more than the word. Why, do we, why did Paul use this term? It's because the victory was not a victory that you won. You just got to participate in it. First day of the NFL season, it's a we day. I've already had conversations with some of you. Chad, you know the Texans kick off at 12. Make sure we're home. Chad, the, the, the Cowboys play at 3 o'clock. Could you not go long-winded today? If I ever keep you guys till 3 o'clock, whoa. Uh, whoa. This isn't secret church. But the language that you're going to use when your team wins or loses is we. We. So if you're cheering for the Carolina Panthers today, which some people in my home are, or you're cheering for the Dallas Cowboys today, which other of my friends are, or you're cheering for the the Texans, whatever NFL team you happen to be cheering for, or whatever college team you cheered for yesterday, we won. You didn't win. You're not going to win. You're not playing wide receiver for that team. You're not running quarterback. You're not the tailback. You're none of the things that 
contribute to that victory. As much as we talk about home field, that's a weird deal. You didn't win, but you got to participate in the win, which makes you more than a winner. We are more than conquerors. One interpreter says, we are super conquerors. We have been given the place where a victory that we had nothing to do with is gifted to us. There is no separation. And these deadly, dangerous things that he lists off don't get to defeat us because those are limited in scope to this life and our new life in Jesus is eternal. We are being killed all the day long. We are a sheep to be slaughtered. You are more than a conqueror. 38, if you read this, when you read the text, it, it ramps. That's Paul is doing what any of us do when we get excited. And it's not often you see Paul get excited. But he gets excited here and he just begins to spit words out. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death or life, that's physical. It's the physical life. That doesn't get to defeat you. Angels, nor rulers, supernatural things that are at power and at work in this world, they don't hold you captive anymore. Things present, nor things to come, time itself is no longer something you are bound by because in Christ Jesus we are eternal beings nor powers, global rulers all the ones that we complain about and all the ones that you kind of like sometimes those things don't define us nor height, nor depth anything, anywhere, anything else in all of creation Paul says just in case I forgot all the stuff those things don't reign over us anymore How do we know this? Because he loves us out of his choice. And God, who is unchanging, loves us so immensely that the things that would pull us apart from anyone else don't pull us apart from Him. Our relationship with God and the lack of separation that we have because of that is based solely on what God has done for us in Jesus because anything in us, that may change. We are fickle. Anything in this world, that may change because the world is broken and busted but Paul is saying to us we can face all that life throws out us throws out at us with confidence why? because he loves us he is for you and he loves you we sing Jesus loves me this I know for the, we know that 
Have you ever thought about that? God loves you. He really, really loves you. What's our hesitation? If that's the last question. If, if God is for us and there's no condemnation. If God is for us and there is no separation. The question that we really don't have an answer to is what is my hesitation and your hesitation with being gospel confident? If you ask me about books that have impacted my life, uh, it doesn't take me very long to get to a book written by John Piper called, called Don't Waste Your Life. It really did at a season in my life. It sh reshaped everything. I recommend it regularly. It, it set me on the course of my current theological disp disposition. Uh, <laughs> just being truthful, other than Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, it's my favorite book ever. And it was born out of a sermon that Piper preached at an event called One Day in 2000. He talked about a tragedy. Let me read this to you. So, so hear me. You get to hear my subpar sermon and a piece of what I consider the greatest sermon of all time. Not preached by Jesus. Or Spurgeon. We'll just go through it. Uh, here we go. You may not be sure that you want your life to make a difference. Maybe you don't care very much whether you make a lasting difference for the sake of something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like being around you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could have a job with a good wife or a husband and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and a quick and easy death. And if you could have all of that, even without God, you'd be satisfied. That is a tragedy in the making. It's a wasted life. In April of 2000, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80, single all of her life. She poured out, it out for one great thing, to make Jesus known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The, the, the brakes failed. The car went over a cliff and they were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion. Namely, to be spent in unheralded service to the perished poor for the glory of Jesus. Even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on trifles. No, that is not a tragedy. That is glory. These, these lives were not wasted and these lives were not lost. As Mark says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest which tells us about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they lived in Punta Gorda, Florida where they, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first when I read it, I thought it might be a joke spoof of the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. 
This is tragedy, real tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream over against that I put my protest, don't buy into it, don't waste your life. Cards on the table. I preached through Romans 8 when I was 32 years old. I was hopefully much less graceful than I am now. But I walked through this text. It took me, it's taken us six weeks to go through this. It took me five weeks then. I've gotten wordier. I was in a suit and tie, which wasn't awesome. And at the end of the service, I walked to the back door to shake hands with everyone as they walk out. I had a little lady walk up to me. She was somewhere between 55 and 60. And after I had read this and we'd been through this series together, she looked at me and she said, You were really hard on old people today. She missed it. She's in danger of wasting her life because something that was said from someone that wasn't even in front of her offended her. I pray that the deep love that God has for every one of us that that shapes us, that saves us will be so overwhelming and so prevalent and so present that we don't miss what God God is calling us to from this text, from every text. It says that we are more than conquerors because of Jesus and we can live in this life and declare that Jesus is worth it. even if it offends our shell collection or whatever your version of that happens to be. Don't waste it. You've been given one life. What are you afraid of? Let's bow our heads together this morning. The band is going to get in place and they're going to lead us like they do each week. We are going to sing together. I will ask if, if you're here and you've never, and you honestly can't say God is for whoever you are. We would love to share with you what it means to trust in Jesus, that what it means that Jesus would give his life for you. Because that's what he gave his life. If you're here and you look at your life and you look at the waste that it may be, God is even using that to, to, to build you and to, to send you to your friends and family and neighbors so that you could say that I've, I've found something that is immeasurably more valuable may I live every day for it and, he, and use my the stuff that I'm involved in to say that Jesus is worth it all he's better
I'm in the back of the room if I'm needed. If you just need to pray, feel free to pray at your seat. If you want the front of the room, it's open too. The back's great. We trust that God's all everywhere, so he's got this room covered. Jesus, we trust you this morning, and we pray over our people. We pray that we won't waste our lives, whatever that means, God, that we won't waste our lives, that we'll see the, the things that you give us. They are opportunities to say that you are immeasurably valuable. There's no condemnation because we're in you. There's no separation because we're in you. God, let us ask ourselves, what's our hesitation? We ask this in Jesus' name.